Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, good people, and welcome to another hard-hitting edition of Tackling a New Kingdom. I am your host, Tank Johnson, and today we have an absolute icon. We have one of the most decorated athletes in American history, 2000 to 2016 Women's National Soccer Team, two-time gold medal winner. This woman's accolades are a show of their own. Hope in the house. Hope, how you doing? Oh man, I'm doing good, Tank. It's good to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. And she is also the host of Hope Solo Speaks on Sirius XM or wherever you get your podcasts. So please go check that out. It is a great listen. And on our show, Hope, we like to tackle three important buckets, something current, something real, and finally something controversial and get you out the door on something light. So today in tackling something current, it seems to be a reoccurring theme, but I have to know, with such a decorated athlete of, from the Pac-10 era, can you tell me like, what's your state of the Pac-10, 12, whatever it is right now, and also, so that's the first part, what's your state of the pack? And then what, how does that affect college soccer in your, in your position? Because I see you guys play all over the country, but it, as it pertains to conferences, how does this new Pac-12 shakeup affect you guys? Yeah, man, the, the, con the conference expansion and this whole realignment is, it's, it's a very foreign concept for me to understand because, you know, we grew up in the Pac-10 and the Pac-12 for West, Co West Coast schools. And I understood the concept of <laughs> recruiting collegiate athletes, but recruiting entire conferences to change conferences. It's, it's this concept that maybe I'm a dinosaur. Maybe I like things the way they used to be. Maybe I like the history um, of our conference, you know, conference of champions. That's how I see it. And, and it's being um, fractured and, and it's not going to be as competitive without schools like UCLA and USC and who knows what's going to happen with Arizona schools. It's going to be changed. I'm not very great at, at, at the nostalgia of change. You know, I think going through change myself, I'm, I'm okay with going through change. You know, we grow up, we change, we make improvements in ourselves, but I want to rely on the Pac-12 as something that's always there. You know, I can tell my kids that is conference that, your your pops and I played in way back in the day and it still is alive and 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 successful and I don't think we know if the Pac-12 is going to sustain and that's really sad to me man that's really sad and I would assume you feel somewhat similar but I understand the business aspect to it of course um the Pac-12 man they better get themselves a, a huge network deal right. they, they need to do something different I mean the fact that it's hard to find the games half the time, they're not on ESPN, they're not on Fox, you know, we're, we're, uh, everybody else seems to have a leg up on us right now. And it's time to get in the fight, keep these good schools, because I can't imagine having, you know, San Diego State in our conference or a Boise State. I know, I know, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And for our like, Olympic sports, okay, like, I, I understand that you know we we play different schools from not necessarily in the 
Pac-12 or West Coast Conference, so we kind of intermingle anyway. Um, I, I just don't see, you know, in, in football, I, I guess it makes sense for us to pay to play the schools in those conferences. What's the what's the furthest school that you guys played when you were there that was non-conference? We had a lot of great non-conference game and preseason games. Um, we played Notre Dame at that time. They were one of the powerhouse soccer schools in the country, um, yeah. North Carolina as well. So that's as far across the coast as, as you can get. Right. Um, but I think I think it's going to be strange because one of my proudest moments, especially being a Husky, being a dog, is is winning that that Pac-10 championship. You know, I still have the ring. Yeah. Not that's my wedding ring. <laughs> yeah. I still have that Pac-10 championship ring. Um, and beating schools like Stanford and UCLA, they are some of the best soccer programs in the country. So if uh, the soccer programs were to leave out of the Pac-12, um, it's, a it's strange to me because, you know, we're relying on the revenue making sport football to allow teams like soccer, women's soccer, men's soccer, the non-revenue sports to now travel further distances. So we're talking about you know, air travel, hotel travel, a lot more travel. So it's going to cost a lot more money for the athletic program. Yeah. So until we're able to sustain that through a, a major, you know, television contract, I don't, half the time we would do fundraising for ourselves, car washes for ourselves, you know? Right. Yes, we got a lot of, you know, a lot of support from the major sports at Washington, but we still had to run our camps and make money for preseason games and all that. So I don't know how it would affect the non-revenue making sports. Well, I, I had Rick Neuheisel on the show a couple weeks ago, and, and he was talking about George Kleofkos, the uh, head of the Pac-12. And, and basically, you know, what he was trying to say was that, you know, the, the Pac-12 network didn't get into as many homes as, you know, they thought they were going to get into. And, you know, where, where they were supposed to make eight to nine million dollars each school they ended up making less than a million. And so when you talk about a network TV deal, I, I just don't see one that really exists that is going to prop up the pack right now because, you know, because, you know, one of the questions that I had for you was like, do you have any solutions to this? And, I, and I'm finding it hard to even come up with like logical ways to keep the pack 12 going. It's over, I think. Yeah, I, I'm afraid you're right. I feel like it's not a question. It's, it's a question of when, you know, at this point, not not what if. And that that's my fear as well. Um, you know, but who knows? We we come from a different generation, you know, Tank. Uh, I believe. Did we? Did you come into college in 1999? I came in 2000. 2000. Yep. So I graduated high school in 1999. So I guess my first soccer season was 2000. So are we the same year? I, I'm trying to figure that out. Well, I graduated high school in year 2000. So let's go there. Okay, so you graduated okay. in 99. You are a year younger than me. I told yeah. you. But okay. Yeah. Um, but we. But anyways, we're. What I was saying is, is, is we are yeah. old school. I think is what I was getting at. And there's a lot of this new way of college sports that that is hard to grasp, you know, even the NIL, the name, image, and likeness, you know, it changes the purity of college sports. And it's just not the same. And I want kids to have an opportunity to make money, definitely take care of their families, make money, be um, educated on how to save that income, even though you're a 17 year old kid making a ton of money off of your name, image, and likeness. But it is changing, you know, where kids are going to school. Kids are now following them, the dollar signs. And we both know being, being true dogs, 
we bled the color purple, you know, and we stood by our programs and it was about winning. It wasn't about making money at that, that point in time in our lives. And yeah, I'm glad these kids get opportunities, but for me, it still steals a little bit of the purity of of the collegiate game. Oh my gosh. That is so true. It's so funny. It's like, you know, the, the one thing that you don't want, I don't want is to feel like the, uh, just the, the old, you know, the old dogs, like, oh, it was, it was like this back in our day. But I mean, like, I, I truly believe that. And, and, and to your point, I can't, I, I don't look down on these guys for having financial opportunities at all. I just know what the injection of that money potentially does to that young person, that young mind, and it just corrupts it. And, and, it, and unfortunately, you know, we sound like, you know, oh, you can't do that. But the truth of the matter is um, we're going to look at the stats, you know, 10, 12 years from now. And unfortunately, they're going to be very honest about what happened when you give these kids millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars way too soon. Everybody so. gets an opportunity right now, you know? Yeah. Based it's... on social media and being an influencer. So everybody has the opportunity to make money. And I get that. But, you know, looking back, I was professionalized at, you know, 16, you know, I played for the national team at 16 years of age. So when I went to University of Washington, I was still training on the national team. So I could have made a ton of money, you know, with the name Hope Solo in Washington State, in a big city, playing for the U.S. team. And when I came back to college, like I had all the stress of of trying to make the big team, trying to make the national team, the 1999 World Cup, the 2000 Olympics, you know. And I'd come back to the university and I had great leadership in our soccer coaches, great camaraderie you know, playing with my, my college teammates, not trying to, you know, cut anybody down while climbing to the top, which sometimes is the culture when you play higher up, um, which mm-hmm. is the culture on the U.S. team. So for me, playing college ball was just so pure and fun, and it really allowed me to, to just fall back on the love of the game, you know, not worry about, you know, the appearances and the autographs and the commercials. It was just Wow, this is why I play the damn game. And I feel bad for kids who don't get that. Me too. Because of the NIL, of course. Man, well, that's great. Well, that is tackling something current and uh, super appreciative. And moving on to tackling something real. Being the most decorated woman in professional football, soccer, sports history, what's been the most rewarding part of the journey. And I'm, and I, and I, and I say it because of this over the years, I've collected a ton of awards and memorabilia, but I I had the privilege of visiting your trophy room in your old house. And while very impressive, I always wondered like, which one of these brings the most memories to you, which one gives you goosebumps. Can you tell me what's been the most rewarding part of your journey? I'm going to give you, um, two answers for this. I'm sorry I can't pick one, but Oh, do your thing. When I uh when I look at my my trophies, um I actually really love my bronze World Cup medal and I love my golden gloves. Now let me explain why. So the golden gloves is it, it's indicative of the fact that I was the best in the world at my position. So I was absolutely, I worked my butt off for God knows how many decades 
to get to the point where the world said, all right, this is the best goalkeeper in, in the world, you know, that I, I can to this day say I was the best at something for my kids. Um, wow. And I want to be able to use that to teach our kids, like, I don't care what you do, but whatever you go out there and do, try to be the best at it. And I, I'm happy that even Jeremy and I can say that because his, his dream was to be drafted in the first round and he attained that goal and that dream. And so I, I find it most rewarding that we can tell our kids that to kind of, you know, give them a little boost or a kick in the butt when they need it as they grow up. 100%. Uh, but losing to Japan in the 2011 World Cup uh, final, I'm sorry, not my bronze medal. Bronze medal has a different story. I have a story for every medal. So my silver World Cup medal is the okay. one that I think back to because it's the first time it was in 2011. We were playing in Germany, a very soccer educated, soccer specific country, beautiful host of the tournament. We um, just find out a couple of days prior to our championship game, I believe it was, maybe it was before the semifinal, but we found out about the tsunami in Japan, mm. um, the earthquake and then the tsunami that displaced, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, many of the players from Japan, uh, one was the captain that I played with, her name was Ayamiyama. Um, I played with her in St. Louis, but many of the players lost family members, didn't know where any of their family members were, couldn't contact talk them back in Japan, thought about flying back home. I still get the chills telling the story, wow. but they decided to stay in Germany to play in the final because they were their country's hope. Their whole country got behind them. They found TVs, you know floating down rivers, they found a way to get them working. They got crowds around in Japan with all this devastation and they cheered their women's team on. And it was the first time that I had seen sport really rise above what sport usually is about winning and losing. It, they became the hope of their nation, the hope of their country. And they actually, I think, played better than what they were capable of because they were playing with a different meaning. And it's the first time I, 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 I witnessed that in sport in a world wow. cup final and uh and they were an incredible incredible team to to lose to a team with respect and admiration um i remember the captain came up to me after the game and she said she said hope i now i'm in tears you know and and uh she's just like hope i feel so bad you know i feel so bad they're celebrating and i was like i uh, Winning a World Cup may only happen once in a lifetime. Please do me the honor and take in this moment and celebrate. Celebrate it. It was right. just one of the beautiful post-match moments that I've had with the opponent that I'll never forget. Wow. And I took great pride in my my silver medal. Wow. No, that's that is amazing. And and you know, it's funny because, you know, during my, you know, time of just playing college and sports and all that I never was one that like collected you know even these little stuff up I have here from UW I never was once to put them up and and do that but then once I left the game I was like oh shit where's that medal where's that where's that you know booklet that I was on the cover of that game day program and so I've always wanted to ask that question to athletes like what's you know i mean freak your your trophy case was a whole entire room and i always thought whoever bought that house was probably looking around like wait a second what the hell was in this room all trophies like i mean that's that's such a awesome deal 
Yeah, that, that home in, in Kirkland on the on the hill overlooking Lake Washington, that was a special place for us. It's where, you know, Jeremy and I really came together and, and built our union. And the people that bought the home were actually soccer fans and they asked for us to keep our our UW uh, posters up in the outside garage, which was our workout room. So wow. the, the little girls got a Hope Solo picture or poster when they moved in. No, that's that's <laughs> awesome. Well, a, a, another question that I wanted to ask you is this. When when at, at UW, when we look at our um, football culture and so much of it, at least when I was there, was passed on from generation to generation. You know, the guys who were there before, you know, teach the guys who how to do it now. What's the culture like? And I want to talk specifically to college soccer. And 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 is it is it like that in terms of like old values, rites of passage, and those things? Is it is it the same? Um, how would you describe that? Well, you're making me feel old again. <laughs> <laughs> We're the same age. Let's just let's no, just talk about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think. Uh... I, I talk about this a lot. I, I do think that, um, like I said, we, we bled purple and gold. We would fight for our teammates. We would do whatever it took to win. Um, and I'm speaking, you know, obviously because I know the stories from Jeremy and being a football player at Washington during that era. And then obviously uh, being an athlete at Washington um, at the same time on the, on the soccer team. And the culture of, of the other sports. I mean, it was a winning culture. And and we had to tough it out. Um, we, we always said, you know, the, the real dogs, dogs with a D-A-W-G. I mean, that was our culture. We fought till the end to win. Yes. And, you know, I, I remember stories of players getting on the line and running 120s, doing fitness tests and having having to pee, you know, but what do you do? You're not gonna be like, hey coach, excuse me, can I can I take a break to your fitness test and walk off the field and you know go to the bathroom? Yeah. That that shit would not happen when we played. And I remember this story where our captain literally was like, ah, oh, screw it, you know, I, I have to run these 120s. And she just you know, let it go down her shin guards and kept on running and passed her fitness test. That stuff doesn't happen this day and age. This day and age and I'm, I'm very close friends with one of the uh, assistant coaches on, on the women's team. And I'm close friends with a lot of different coaches who, you know, are, are coaching um, major clubs, are either scouts for the national team. So I, there's a lot of people that I do communicate this with. And, and nowadays you can say, hey, I'm having a hard day. Can I take a mental health day? Or I'm having a hard day. You know, I, I have to use the bathroom. I can't run the 120s. You might have to step off the field. Yeah, go ahead. And I, I understand, you know, that we have to take care of, of um, the mental health of our younger generations and our younger athletes. But at the same time, there is something to be said for get your ass on the line, run your 120s, run your fitness, no giving up. I don't care if it's a hard day. Sometimes you just need to get through it and you'll feel better on the other end. And so I do think we've lost a little bit of that. But, but just like anything... I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but just like anything, Hope, I think that un unfortunately, this young generation, like any generation, has learned how to take advantage of those mental health, that that ability to, to get out of doing something that's that's demanding on you. 
And just like anything else, uh, people are going to find ways to take advantage of it. And, and it, and it just blurs the water of, you know, like the transfer portal, right? It's like, now, if you go through the transfer portal, you've got to have something in there that, that was a, you know, a, a redeeming reason of why you had to transfer. And if you put the mental health, it's signed and you you can play when you get over there. So I, 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 I kind of, I, 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 I'm afraid that it's going to be like the boy who cried wolf, you know, once you get later on down the line with this uh, just mental health thing and getting a day off. So uh, I, I completely agree with you there. And I think some of the most influential coaches that I've ever had and leaders that I've ever played for um, or been surrounded by have been the tough loved ones. Once were really hard. I had so many players tell me at Washington that they, they, were too scared to knock on the door uh, there at Graves Annex where their coach's office was and have a meeting with the coach. And I'd be like, why, man, why? You know, she, she's, yeah, she's tough, but she's awesome and she wants the best for us. And, and so I loved that tough love that I got from my coaches. Those were the best coaches I've ever had. They weren't easy. Um, they weren't likable necessarily. They didn't want to be liked by everyone. Those were the best coaches that I've ever in this day and age you have to blame it on the coach as well because so many coaches want to be liked they want to be loved they want everyone to um, I, I get buying into the game plan but I think a true leader and a true coach should be okay with not being liked and then what I was going to say is those players would turn around five years after college and say oh my gosh Leslie Gallimore was the best thing that ever happened to me she was hard on me in college but I don't know where I would be without her yeah, no, um, I completely agree. I had Randy Hart. He was a hail raiser and an ass kicker. And he he would not allow you to leave with one ounce of potential. He used to tell me, I hate the word potential. Uh, I, I, I need you to bring it out. I want to see it. And he would not allow me to give up on myself. So kudos to all the old school coaches who got the best out of young men and women uh, at all costs, but did it the right way. Um, so that is tackling something real. And now we're going to get to tackling something controversial. I feel that uh, hard conversations lead to better perspective. And this is something that you've been at the forefront of for many years. We all know that equal pay, the equal pay conversation comes with tremendous nuance. Can you tell me uh, a pathway for more equitable pay as it pertains to men and women's sports? Yeah, I wish I could figure out that pathway, man. But what I will tell you, this is how far removed we are from it. So I've been very hands-on working with Congress to get this Equal Pay for Team USA Act um, to, the, to the Senate floor. It's very much a bipartisan bill. Um, it's very well supported on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and we're having a hard time getting it to the Senate floor right now. But in um, editing the bill, I should say, everybody wanted to edit the hell out of tiny words. So we're talking about the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, so the USOPC, was a part of supporting or not supporting this bill. So this bill states that we should have 
equal compensation for all Olympic amateur athletes. So we're just talking about equal compensation, support, travel, you know, budget, equal compensation for men and women Olympic athletes. That's it. We're not talking about professional sports right now. We're not talking about U.S. soccer and the NFL and the NBA and the WNBA. We're just talking about Olympic sports and really supporting our amateur athletes. And what the USOPC did was they took out the word equal, and so did a lot of the senators, took out the word equal, and they wanted equitable. So it's something that you can't really measure because equitable should mean equal, but really it's in some gray ballpark area. So that's what we're dealing with. We always want to keep it a little gray because nobody wants to commit to the word equal. We use equitable and, you know, we might as well say uh, in in some close demeanor, whatever close is, because that can be debated. It's relative, right? It it is. But as for, you know, the Equal Pay Act in Title VII, I'm very proud to say that I was the the first ever athlete to sue their own employer um, for violation of the Equal Pay Act in Title VII. And my case is still the only case pending uh, in, in court in the Northern District Court of, of California. It's the only one still pending. Um, there was a class action about a year after mine. It was the class action of the US current members of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that is going forward. So they're getting equal CBAs going forward. But you have to understand in the CBA, we had fought for decades to get more players on contracts, to allow players to play overseas, to, to have a number of different freedoms, right? But you always want to get more players on contract, not less. But in this new CPA that a lot of people don't understand, yes, the men and women will get paid equally per friendly match that they play. There's no guarantee of the matches and there's no, uh, uh, we went down in the guaranteed number of salaries. Mm. So it, it is a catch 22, but we as a society, we want to celebrate it because I think so many people are tired of hearing you know, the equal pay. This has been a really high profile class action suit. It's in all over the media. Um, it has been settled. You know, the court hasn't approved the official settlement. It's going to be approved soon, I think. Um, but everybody wants to celebrate it when we're so far away from actually really getting to equal pay. And again, you know, just for your listeners, the Equal Pay Act is only referring to this law has been around since 1963 put into effect, signed by John F. Kennedy, and yet we're still fighting for it. And all it says is if you have the same employer with the same um, obligations, not necessarily the same title, but same obligations and work duties, then you cannot uh, discriminate based off of sex, right? right. So th- that's all it says. And so we're not looking at, let's say, and a lot. I get this a lot by a lot of, <laughs> honestly, I think it's just sexist people. Um, who say, well, you really think NBA players and the WNBA players should get paid the same? No, they're not the same employer. Like those are two different employers. So there's a lot of nuances, like you said, that people don't really understand. But right now we are not following a 1963 federal law of equal pay all over the country and all sorts of businesses. And and I think that's what, I think that's where the confusion is, is because I, I hear the argument that, you know, we'll just stick with the WNBA that, they don't generate as much revenue, right? And so therefore it would be hard to pay them the same as a NBA. So is, do you kind of see the same argument for women's soccer and men's soccer or, well, or no? The difference is, is for the United States soccer team. Okay. It's one employer. U.S. soccer is the employer for the men and they're the employee for the women. On any given year, we play 
roughly the same amount of games. We have the same obligations. We have to do media. We have to travel. We have to go to training camps. We have to do residency programs. Same obligations. And this is a different variable that shouldn't matter. But the women actually do bring in more marketing dollars because of our win and loss record, because we win Olympics, because we win World Cups. So we actually do bring in more money to the game. Um, but despite that, everything the same, then you have to be paid equally. And because it's our, it's one employer. Yeah. And see, again, it's, it's the nuances that people don't hear when they're fucking screaming. It's, 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 it's that, that they don't get. And, and, you know, for me, um, I am a fundamentalist, a traditionalist in the sense of like, if it makes sense, do it the way it makes sense. But as USA soccer is the one governing body for both men and women, um, making the contracts more fair, that seems like it should be doable and it should be low hanging fruit, right? It should be, especially because they want to be the, you know, they, they, they could be the, they could have been the first. Sweden went on to do it. Norway went on to do it. Australia, New Zealand, there's a number of nations who now are the first to pay their men and women soccer players equally, but it should have been the United States. We have the most money. We have a very successful women's program and they want to be the leaders of, of equal pay yet they're really continuing to be our enemies. And the last thing I'll say about the, the new CBA, which is something to be celebrated, but like I said, we shouldn't be celebrating players, less players on contracts and no guaranteed matches. But you have to realize in this class action settlement, there are so many great players who are going to be left, left out of, of the settlement. So and, many. and really some of those players are the ones who went on and fought the initial fight with the EEOC. So that that's tough, you know? They, they've waited to file so long that there's a statute of limitations. So a lot of players won't be getting paid. Well, that is tackling something controversial and I appreciate you handling that head on. And we'll get you out of here on something light. We, we kind of talked about it um, within, this, within this conversation. Do you ever see yourself being a coach uh, on in any different level? I will never be a head coach, period. Um, <laughs> Sarah, can we get a reason? <laughs> yeah, man, I love defense. I can read defenses. I love organizing the midfield and the defense. And I love teaching goalkeepers how to be the best. Um, so I would love to be a defensive coach. Um, but everything has to be right. You know, it's been a hard two and a half years with the pandemic, having twins. Um, it, it's been tough with the restructuring of the soccer, you know, from the fall to the spring and the scheduling during the pandemic. Um, so who knows what's out there? But yeah, I would love to help help a program in qualifying. That's what I want to do. I want to I help a Costa Rica or somebody beat the United States. Not that I don't bleed, you know, bleed red, white, and blue also, but right. I really want to help build CONCACAF in this region of, of the Americas. Well, I just want to tell you that you came, you saw, and you tackled, and we are so unbelievably grateful to have you on Tackling a New Kingdom. It means a lot to me, Tang. Well, you're, you're a real again. dog, man, and it's nice to be on your show. Oh, thank you. And that, and again, if you want to catch Hope on Hope Solo Speaks on Sirius XM or wherever you watch your podcast, thanks for being with me, Hope. Thank you, Tank. 
Thank you for watching Believe. You can find more great content at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Do you believe?